0: Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot slash join. This is a science podcast for February 25th, 2022. I'm Sarah Presby. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, we have freelance science writer, Sadir El-Shouk, We talk about the science and the politics around the world's first long-term repository for high-level nuclear waste being built deep underground in Finland. Also this week, we start a series of interviews from the AAAS Annual Meeting. First in the series is researcher Par Bjelkebring. We talk about numeracy and life satisfaction. Does being math literate make you more satisfied with your life? It may depend on how much money you make. is now putting the finishing touches on the world's first permanent high-level nuclear waste site. Freelance science writer Sadir el shouk visited the repository deep underground on an island. He's here to talk about how it came to be. Hi, Sadir.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me here.
0: Sure. So tell us about your visit to this waste site. What was it like? How did you get inside?
1: After going through some introductory stuff and visiting the plant where they actually will encapsulate the fuel on the surface. We went to the tunnel that leads down to where the fuel will be buried, which was just seven kilometers of switchback turns going hundreds of meters down into the ground. It was a lot more mundane than I expected it to be in a way because we have a lot of underground facilities here in Helsinki and Finland has a lot of expertise in that. So it felt similar to a lot of the parking lots and subway stations here, but then it is designed in a way that's very different from them and designed to house this fuel and keep it safe for 100,000 years.
0: And this is the final destination for nuclear waste from Finland. Is there a lot of nuclear power in the country and therefore a lot of nuclear waste?
1: At the moment, I think it's around 30 percent or a bit less than 30 percent. But when the the newest reactor comes online later this year, 40 percent of the country's power will come from nuclear. So far, that's generated about two and a half thousand or 2,600 tons of waste, which on the one hand, that's quite a lot of radioactive waste to have. But on the other hand, it depends what you're comparing with, because I think Sweden has seven or 8,000 tons and the U.S. has over 50,000 tons.
0: How is this location chosen? What makes it a good place for long lasting storage?
1: There are two sides to that. There's the technical side which is the geological features, because you want a certain kind of bedrock in the sense that you don't want it to be too porous. The porosity is important to keep water out. But then on top of that, you also need to have political acceptance. You need to have community buy-in to have a waste site there. That was an important factor in choosing this site because it is one of the sites in Finland where nuclear power is generated. So the community there has a long relationship with the nuclear power industry and knows how they work. a lot of the people in the community either have worked in the plants or know somebody who's worked in the plants. so I think it was a lot more straightforward for the, the nuclear power company to deal with them
0: right I, you know a lot of people are probably familiar with the debates around citing nuclear waste repositories, long drawn-out political battles that have happened in a lot of different countries. So this wasn't really the case in Finland they didn't have a lot of resistance.
1: There was some initial resistance in I think the 80s. But they basically were able to negotiate with the community to get to a point where the community was willing to accept it. And that's also one of the things that's quite different, I think, about Finland from other sites is that once that initial negotiation happened and the community agreed to have the the facility built there and the government then gave its approval once the community agreed, there hasn't been a lot of involvement after that from the community. There is a culture here of trusting institutions and trusting the government and accepting scientific expertise. That's meant that it's been quite hands off since then, which is very different from what's happened in some other countries.
0: Can you talk about the processes that are needed to safely store the waste?
1: So there's an interim storage facility on site, which is large pools of water. The spent fuel rods are put in those pools of water where they cool off for decades before they actually can move to being prepared to go underground. All of this is basically on the same site, so it's not a very long distance that the spent fuel will have to travel from the interim storage site to the new building that they started in 2019 to build this encapsulation plant. When the fuel arrives there, the first thing that will happen is it will be taken out of the transport casks and there's a room where it needs to be dried and put into the canisters, and that's the point at which the fuel is completely exposed and obviously no human interaction is possible the fuel will be handled entirely by robots. And there are three stations where the fuel will initially be dried and put in the the copper and cast iron canisters, and then argon gas will be pumped in to create an inert atmosphere. So
0: what are these canisters designed to do exactly?
1: In principle, they're designed to never break down and thus protect from water. But in practice, of course, nothing will never break down. Yeah, The entire system relies on a series of barriers that starts with the casks, the fuel is put inside a cast iron cylinder which has slots where the fuel rods will go and that fits within a copper canister both of those are designed to protect the fuel from water from reaching the fuel because ultimately the only way for the radioactivity to get back to the surface is if water gets in contact with the fuel and picks up some radionuclides that it can then transport back to the surface copper fit a lot of the technical needs that were part of the design And the idea here is that even if water reaches the copper, because the water at those depths will not have any oxygen in it, that means that there will be little, if any, corrosion that happens. So this is what happens on the surface. Then once they're taken down and buried, the next layer out around the canisters will be this mineral clay that swells when it comes into contact with water. And that is designed to provide yet another barrier to block water from reaching the canisters. And also to keep microbes away from the canisters.
0: Where does the clay go? Does it go around the canisters or is the whole tunnel filled up with it?
1: Underground, there will be long tunnels. I visited one of the first tunnels that's being built. It's pretty much exactly what you imagine when you hear a a tunnel underground. Yeah. But within that tunnel, there will then be holes. There'll be about 30 or 40 holes in each tunnel, which is where the canisters will go. And these are big canisters and big holes. I didn't realize until I went there and saw. Quite how big these are. I think each canister is about eight meters tall.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: So, in those holes, before they put the canisters in, there'll be a plug of the clay at the bottom. And then the canister will go in and the clay will be filled in around the canister. And then there'll be a plug on top. And then, once all of the holes in the tunnel are filled, the tunnel itself will be filled with the clay. And then, of course, around all of this is the bedrock itself, which is yet another barrier to things moving.
0: There's a lot being done to keep water away from the canisters. In this location, what would happen if water did manage to penetrate all these defenses?
1: The safety case for this has involved analyses at various levels. And one is looking at the integrity of the canisters, and one is looking at the clay and so forth. But ultimately, then there's the question of, well, what happens if, let's say, there is a systemic manufacturing problem and a lot of the casks just have a flaw and water gets in? And figuring out what happens then depends a little bit on the time scale that you're talking about as well, because it will take at least decades for the water to carry the radioactive material back to the surface. And the safety assessment has basically shown that even with systematic errors in the canisters, and even with water picking up those radionuclides and carrying them back to the surface, and even with people who are living on the surface, imagine in a few hundred years, there's a community that's living up there that's getting basically all of their food and water from the local environment, they would still end up with an acceptable level of radiation exposure.
0: So like within what we consider normal now from getting x-rays and going on airplanes and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's been a very big discussion, mostly in Sweden and a little bit in Finland. Sweden is using the same technology for their repository. And there's been a, a discussion about whether the copper will or will not corrode. Yeah. Which we can go into. But ultimately, the argument that the implementer has made, which the safety regulators have accepted is that even if the copper canisters corrode, even if there is a problem with that, there are enough other barriers in place, including the hundreds of meters of bedrock, that exposure will stay at an acceptable level.
0: So are there other sites around, not just in Finland, but in Sweden and I'm assuming other parts of the world where this kind of repository can be built with this similar scenario with the stability of the bedrock and the slow movement of water?
1: The concept that's being used here was actually developed as a collaboration between the Swedish and Finnish organizations. And Sweden is just a little bit further back in the process, partly because there's been a bit more opposition there because of this corrosion question. In principle, this kind of technology could be applied anywhere that has similar bedrock. And even aside from this specific technology, the general principle of a multi barrier system for a deep geological repository is what most of the countries that are looking at this are working on.
0: Is that the big debate now, the corrosion of the copper? I was going to ask you, like, are there still safety concerns for the site?
1: There are researchers who think that it's problematic. So there are researchers in Sweden who have, they've shown that even under these kinds of oxygen-free water conditions, there is evidence that some corrosion is happening with the copper. The main issue that they raise is not the corrosion of the copper itself directly, but the fact that From the experiments they've done, they've shown that in pure oxygen-free water, copper undergoes a reaction that releases hydrogen gas. And their concern is that the hydrogen could make the copper more brittle and then lead to failure of the canisters. But the people I spoke with think that it's unlikely to happen and that if it does happen, it will happen slowly enough that it won't actually make a difference, especially because there are all of these other barriers in place. So they've decided to go ahead with it because of that. But there are definitely people who are concerned about it. And then there are some other concerns that have uh, also been raised by the Nature Conservation Organization here and some NGOs in Sweden and things like that, which is where we get back to the question of the fact that in Finland, once it was decided that this was going to go ahead, it was just left in the hands of the regulators. Whereas in other countries, those concerns have led to more pushback. The reason I stress that is because I think this story is often told from the perspective of... Finland is able to do this because they managed to get community buy in and they managed to get community buy in because Finnish society is a consensual democracy and so forth. And that is all true. But the other side of it is that you can call it a consensual democracy or you can say maybe they didn't push back hard enough and interrogate as much as they should have.
0: What are some of the concerns from the nature of groups and the NGOs?
1: Part of it is they're saying if there's still any doubt about the corrosion, then we should just wait and figure it out. Which, on the one hand, that's a fair point. But on the other hand, while we're waiting, the waste is sitting in facilities above ground and accidents can happen. But on top of that, they're also concerned about things like bioaccumulation of the isotopes and the fact that these are predictions that are happening over the scale of 100,000 years. There will be another ice age, there will be probably some earthquakes, things like that. So it comes down to how much, how willing are you to accept our ability to predict on that timescale, because ultimately these are these are models.
0: Yeah. And we have no way of testing whether or not something will last 100,000 years.
1: We have no way of testing it. But one of the people I spoke with at Sandia Labs in the US told me what I found a compelling reason for believing that this kind of technology would work, but also a really fascinating story. Apparently, one reason... To have confidence in the ability or in the safety of a deep geological storage facility is that, in fact, somewhere in West Africa, I can't remember offhand exactly where it was, about 2 billion years ago, a fission reaction just started by itself in uranium deposits underground and ran for some thousands of years. It wasn't the same power levels as we have in our reactors, but basically, There was just a natural fission reactor going for a while, and it generated spent fuel, essentially. We can and people have looked at how far the waste from that reaction, if you want to call it that, has moved, and it's moved quite minimally. It seems that the rock and the structures around it do a really good job of keeping it in place. That's without engineered barriers. Of course, that's also without humans digging a big hole there first.
0: When exactly will the repository be ready to receive the
1: first canisters? if everything goes according to plan, in 2024 or 2025.
0: What's the capacity for this facility? How long is it expected to function before you have to seal it up?
1: It's actually designed to store about 6,500 tons. It will take them about a century to build it and store all of that waste. That timeline is determined by their plan to build things, but also by the fact that the newest reactor that should come online or be connected to the grid this year is expected to run for about 60 years, and then it takes about 40 years for the fuel to cool down. So the last fuel from that reactor will be ready to be buried in about a century. So that's kind of their, their timeline. It didn't even actually come up in the article, unfortunately, that we don't have century scale projects.
0: <laughs> it kind of blows my mind when you say, "Oh, well, this is intended to be built over the course of a century," and it's kind of outside my experience to talk about a project like that. Of course, we look way back in time; we see things like cathedrals that took centuries. But these days, we don't really hear much about that. Yeah. Thanks, Sadir.
1: My pleasure. It was great talking with you.
0: Sadir Elshok is a science writer based in Finland. You can find a link to the feature we discussed at science.org/podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with researcher Par Bialkebring. We talk about numeracy, which is like literacy, but for math and numbers, and how it affects your satisfaction with life. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org Eppendorf to apply today. For the next few months, we'll be highlighting some talks and panels from the AAAS annual meeting, which is wrapping up this uh, second week of February here. Today we have Par Bjelkebring, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Psychology at the University of Gothenburg. We're going to talk about numeracy and life satisfaction. Does being number literate affect how you feel about your life? Hi, Par. Hi, Sarah. I've heard of literacy, being literate, being illiterate. But there's also something called numeracy, being numerate or innumerate.
2: Being numerate means that you are better with numbers, better with math. We test numeracy with a math test, actually. Questions that might be, if 1% of people would get this disease and there is a 1,000 people, how many people would get the disease? We might have much harder questions than that. but. We know that from studies that a lot of people, Americans and Swedes, have a fairly low numeracy and might be called enumerate.
0: What would that make hard for you in a daily situation if you are innumerate?
2: It might be hard for you to understand how a credit card works. It might make you misunderstand how much A loan would cost you even a short term loan, like a payday loan. It might be hard to compare your salary to a yearly or a monthly or hourly salary or incorporate for a lot of people that work as gig workers to understand how much money you actually get over when you have to pay for your car, your car insurance, gas and things like that. There's a lot of math that you need to do in daily life. And where does
0: numeracy come from? Can we say, you know, this is something people learn in school, this is correlated with
2: education? It does, it does. And and we learn a lot about numbers and math in schools, but not all education is equal. So even people with the same education and even people with college degrees might differ greatly in their numeracy level. And some people with high education and that are, well, you would say intelligent in different ways might be lacking in their numeracy level and might be actually innumerate.
0: Yeah, I definitely noticed some of the brightest people I know will still say things like, oh, but I'm bad at math or I'm afraid of math
2: you know, I can't talk about this without talking about math anxiety and oh, yeah. and things like feeling not so confident with your numbers. So we know that feeling not confident with numbers will lead you to avoid learning more about math. And that can actually have big consequences later in life, because we know also as from our research that numeracy and being good with math leads to greater incomes. And it actually influences people all the way up Until the retirement, if a person has a high school diploma, there's a 40,000 difference between the people with the lower numeracy and the higher numeracy in their income. And this is just based upon if they scored, you know, zero or eight on our, our math test, even though that they had exactly the same education level.
0: Let's talk about your study. So you measured numeracy in this population and then what other factors, what other variables
2: did you look at? Yeah, so we gave them this math test and then we looked at income. We looked at their life satisfaction, their income satisfaction. We also looked at things like education and intelligence, verbal intelligence, how good they were with verbal analogies and personality, uh, demographics. We control for a lot of other things that we know influence people's uh, income levels and also their satisfaction levels. We can't know for sure that none of this influence at all, but we try to do our best to figure out other things that might influence this relationship and try to control for them.
0: So we're hoping to link life satisfaction with numeracy, but let's expand on what life satisfaction is first.
2: So life satisfaction is how you think about your life. If you're satisfied with your life, but this is a little bit different than a person's happiness, which are maybe less how you think about your life and more how you feel about your life. They are very similar and, and, and there are correlated, but there are some important differences there. And it seems like How you think about your life, so life satisfaction, seems to be more influenced by income than happiness. That seems to be more influenced by other things.
0: This is where things get a little complex because there's already a relationship that we know established between income and life satisfaction. And now we're bringing numeracy into the mix.
2: One thing that has been seen in many, many studies is that income is... Very important for life satisfaction, and and a a few studies have actually tried to do causal relationship, where they see what happens when people start making more, or what happens when people get a lot of money. It's very hard to look at income because it's nothing that we can experimentally influence. It's hard to look at education because we cannot give people more or less education, of course. So all this is. It's correlational, and we try to understand this from using large populations, and this is what we did in in our study. So we know that people that make more money seem to have higher life satisfaction.
0: Now we do have to introduce another concept to get to the results here, this idea that there's a sweet spot for income, income satiation, over which earning more is basically gravy for most people. I've actually read a lot about this in the popular press. I think at one point it was 70000 in the U.S., Is this income satiation a result that's seen in other places, around the world, in different studies? Is it a pretty strong finding?
2: It is a very strong finding, and they seem to find it all over the world. That satiation point, so where money doesn't really influence your life satisfaction anymore, is different between different countries, of course. What we show in in our study is that it seems to differ between people of different math ability. So for people that are really good with math, we didn't really see a satiation point. We didn't have incomes to into the millions, but we had you know, over 100,000. And people with very low math ability, they, they seem to satiate very early. So money didn't matter that much to them.
0: There's this interesting relationship that you found between numeracy, income, and satisfaction, even outside of the satiation point. It's not a straight line. If you're really good at math and you have a really high income, you're happy. And if you have low, 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 you're unhappy.
2: It's not. So basically what happens is, and we thought that this was very interesting, that when you look at at numeracy, it's not that everyone that are good with math are automatically really, really happy.
0: Mm-hmm. Or really make a lot of money, right?
2: Or really make a lot of money also. We, have, we had a lot of people that were really good with math, but did not make a lot of money. And what we saw was actually that the people that were the best at math were at the same time as there were these rich, really happy people that were great at math. We also saw that there were people that did not make a lot of money and they were actually the least satisfied. So they had the lowest life satisfaction, the people with the highest math ability and the highest life satisfaction at the same time. And this comes from this satiation, as I talked about before, because if you really care a lot about money, that it seems like people high in math does, if you don't have any money, of course, you're going to be very dissatisfied. But if you have a lot of money, you will be very satisfied.
0: Yeah. One thing I was thinking about, I think it was a question from the audience about, If you're more numerate, your income might go up and how that might work. And I thought about there's this financial advice that I see a lot online that says once you make a certain income, you need to split it into savings and fund money and retirement. And so that you start to think differently about your money and your income and see what exactly you're doing with your money. So if you become more numerate, you start to examine your finances more minutely.
2: I think that that is absolutely correct. And you not only examine your spendings or your finances, you might actually start thinking about, so am I making more or less than other people that I work with? When you start thinking about your own income and you start comparing it to others and you start thinking about how much is this per year, how much is this per hour, or how much does someone else make? And we know that there might be huge differences within the same workplace and One very common thing people talk about is that men makes more money than women. When we start to compare your salary to maybe statistics or to other people's salary at your workplace, I think that that comparison might make you satisfied if you realize that you have a high income and also dissatisfied if you realize that your income is lower than others. And I think that that dissatisfaction will make you ask for more money from your boss or will make you, if your boss doesn't want to pay you more, will make you quit eventually. Because it is like this affective, this emotional response that we get from number comparisons and thinking about numbers and, and incomes. I think that that helps us act in a way. If, if numbers is just numbers and we only understand them without feeling anything for them, We might not act, but when we start understanding them in a way that it makes us feel annoyed, makes us feel happy, I think that then we will act also. Then we will change something. I think that that might be one of the processes here that makes people higher in numeracy make more money.
0: On the panel today, there were a couple other speakers that were interested in numeracy and representations of numbers. There were a few questions about causality when it came to this? Can we say that numeracy gets you high income or numeracy gets you high satisfaction if you have high income? And, you know, it seems like this finding is consistent. Studies from your lab, elsewhere, thousands of people in different parts of the world have participated in studies like this, but it's not possible to say causality at this point. What kind of experiment would help solidify that?
2: there is a few different ways that we in our lab are looking at solving this right now. First of all, we can try to see the psychological process. So what is it that the people high in numeracy does that makes them happy about their income and also sad about their income? And what we think it is, and we have some data on that, it is that they compare their incomes more. Comparing your income can make you happy if you have a higher income than others. And if you have a lower income, Than others, you'll be unhappy. And it's not weird, I think, to think that being good at math helps you in comparing numbers. I might be wrong in that, and I'm open to that. But what we want to see, first of all, and what we're trying to do now is to see if we can get the people that are low in numeracy that doesn't seem to compare numbers, if we can get them to compare numbers more, if they can be more influenced by their income. And see if we can make people more satisfied about their pay or less satisfied. And when we don't need to pay them a lot. You know, I think that this could happen just if you pay people a few cents or, you know, a few dollars. How easy is it to increase someone's numeracy? It is fairly hard, I would say. There is ways of doing it. And most of the interventions that we are working with, and you saw the other people from the lab, is trying to have people that are fairly low numeracy, understand the information they have in front of them without needing to making them better at math or having them go through some training or some intervention. But there is ways. And we have a few studies that looks at what happens when we increase people's numeracy with math classes or stats classes. And we see that their decision-making skill increases in the way that We think that it would theoretically, but I think that what I, my dream to find is some large intervention that has already been done. Maybe there is a state, maybe there's a country that from a year to another just boosted the number of math classes that all children took. It's not a pure experiment, but it's a natural experiment. Something that happened in some place where a lot of people suddenly got more math training. And look at that.
0: Yeah, it does seem like a good idea to do that. I mean, one of the things that came up quite a bit in the panel was, This understanding of large numbers and how this is a barrier in public life for decisions about government policies and spending, it would be pretty helpful if people were more numerate to help with those kinds of things.
2: Absolutely. And I think that for the future, that would be a really good thing to do to focus more. And I think that our whole school system, you know, what do people go to school for? They go to school to read and write. No one would say, I, oh, yeah, we send our kids to school to learn to draw. You learn to draw, of course, you learn history. But a lot of the focus on, of our education system is to make people literate and numerate, right? Yeah. So I think that we have this idea that being good with numbers and being having high numeracy is important in our society. And to be fair, we also need to make all the information that we have available for all people of different ability. Even if we increase our education in math and make people more numerate, we will still have people that are not that good with numbers. And they also deserve to understand all the information. Thanks, Par. Thank you. This was super fun.
0: R. Bielkebring is a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychology at the University of Gothenburg. The work we discussed was presented at the AAAS annual meeting as part of a panel on decision-making with large numbers and its underlying psychological mechanisms. You can find more information about this panel and the rest of the annual meeting at meetings.aaas.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org podcast. Or you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crusty, with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S slash join.